0: Well, I want to welcome you all here. Welcome over in the venue. I'm just really grateful for all of you that serve over there and the the worship team that's over there. And if you're watching online, welcome. If you're listening on the radio, uh, glad you're you're you're, you're listening. Um, hey, uh, my uh, I have our, my wife and I have a small group that meets on Sunday nights, and they're, most of them are all new and young marrieds, and and we have our tickets because we're, we're, we're gonna be at this thing. If you are a young couple, this is the kind of thing you need to come to, you need to be at this. You get to meet other couples, hang out, get to meet Mark and Tammy Clements, the leaders of that ministry, and uh, we're gonna have a great time, a great, great food and all that, so make sure you, you, you get your tickets afterwards, okay? We'll have a great Friday night next, um, ne- next Friday. Um, I wanna tell you, uh, just quickly, that about um, 30-something years ago, I was a brand new visitor here at Big Belly Greats. I didn't know the Lord uh, from Howard Hughes. It wasn't on this location, it was actually uh, over on Stanford Avenue. And when I got here, one of the first guys I met was a man by the name of Claris Coyman. And Claris was an usher, a greeter here, his wife sings in the choir and, Later, I became the youth pastor. I had Bible studies at his house. His two children were in my youth ministry. And Claris was an incredible man uh, who was used in great ways to to build this church. He was an elder. And on Friday, he got to meet the Lord face to face. He lost his battle with with cancer. And um, just wanted you as a family to know, if you know Ree or the kids, be praying for them. Send them a little, note or something, and we're going to send out an email blast to everybody letting you know when the funeral is. We, we don't know when it is yet. It'll be sometime this next week. But I want you to remember th- that family. It's a great family. I'm not standing right here if it's not for a man like um, Clarice Coyman, who invested in, in my life as a young man. And I know uh, that was a, a family that's been a blessing to, to lots of people. But um, anyway, for the past, nine weeks, we've been looking at the book of Nehemiah, it's been a series on leadership. And I've told you guys over and over and over again, all of us are leaders in some capacity or another. If you have the title of dad, you're a leader, right? You've got the title of mom, you're a leader. My daughter, who's 21 years old, she's the firstborn in our family, and she, she's a leader because of that. Some of you are managers or you're the supervisors at the businesses you work at, that makes you a leader. Some of you, a lot of you are presidents or vice presidents of, of companies. Obviously, that makes you a leader. Some of you are the, the owner of a company or a business. That makes you a, a leader. And obviously, you're the leader of your own life. Nobody has more influence in your life than, than, than you do. And, um, you know, one of the things that, that happened as we went through this series, we're wrapping it up uh, today today. Is somehow in my mind, I thought we were just gonna look at an old book, an old history book, and, and on some plane, for those of us that name the name of Christ, it's good to know Jewish history. Nothing wrong with that. But what really surprised me was just how God used this series in so many people's lives. The the number of emails and phone calls and conversations I had from dads who said, you know what, I'm gonna be a different dad because of this, I never thought of myself as a leader in my home like that. Number of moms who said, you know what, I'm gonna be a different kind of mom around my home. I've heard from students who never really thought about the fact that, you know, I'm the firstborn child and I haven't been a very good example to the rest of my siblings. I need to be a better leader in that area. I've, I've I've heard from managers, supervisors who have said, you know what? I haven't been a very good leader to the people that are under me. My my, my how I go about my job is going to be different. I've heard from presidents of companies, vice presidents of some companies, owners of businesses who have told me, you know what? <laughs> I I just never really thought uh, about how I lead, and how it impacted you know so, so much of of my life. So it's been really neat to see how the Holy Spirit has been at work. Uh, I told you um, on the very first week, I told you that the foundation of leadership is character. Leadership is all about about character. And um, charisma has nothing to do with with leadership. It's, It's all about character. Uh, Personality or temperament has nothing to do with leadership, it's about character. Wealth, it doesn't matter how wealthy you are, that has nothing to do with leadership, but it's about character. Leadership is about who you are when when nobody's looking. That's what matters. In fact, on that first little line right there, just just write down character. Leadership is all about character. And I was thinking about um, some of the different characters in, in scripture. Some of the different personalities. I was thinking about Paul. He was a choleric. There's no doubt in my mind. Uh, some, some of you are, are choleric. Some of you are sanguine in your personality. And I, I think Peter was probably a, a sanguine. Some of you are, have a, a melancholy personality. And I think Moses was a melancholy. Some of you uh, have a phlegmatic personality. And I think when you look at the life of, of Abraham, he, he was a phlegmatic And all four of these men, you know, Paul, Peter, Moses, Abraham were were way different people, but they were all incredible leaders. God used them all. Because leadership isn't about whether you're a phlegmatic or you're a sanguine or you're a choleric. Leadership's all about character. And uh, obviously, Nehemiah was a man of incredible uh, character. He was an ordinary man, but he, he did extraordinary things because he was a, a, a man of, of, of character. Now, what I want to do today is this. Uh, I'm going to wrap up the series by giving you a summary of some of the things we looked at. And obviously, we all have had our favorites, little, little things that have come out that, for whatever reason, the Lord touched you. But since I'm the guy that's standing up here, I've picked my top five, okay? <laughs> These are the top five things, characteristics of of a great leader. But before I get into it, I need to, for the last time, at least in this series, give you the the history behind the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah happened about 2,500 years ago. The Jewish people lived in a city called Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is still there now. You can read about Jerusalem in the paper. In fact, our president will be heading over to Jerusalem here in the next week or so. He's going to spend some time over there. I've been to Jerusalem on a number of occasions. I'll be leading another trip to uh, the the Holy Land here in, I don't know, whatever it is, eight or nine months or whatever whatever it is. And so the Jewish people lived in this city called Jerusalem. And in those days, they would put up a big um, wall around the city. And that's how you protected, you know, all the people of the city from the bad guys, the bad armies. And the people lived there. And God said, listen, here's what I want. I, I, I'm gonna give you some commands. I'm gonna give you some decrees. I'm gonna give you, a, 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 you know, some thoughts on how you're to live your life, some rules, if you will. And as long as you live by these rules, God said, you know what, everything will be okay. I'll blow your mind, I'll take care of you. And the Jewish people made a decision that they didn't wanna follow God. They didn't wanna live by God's rules and that came with a consequence. And as I've told you each week, we all understand that, don't we dads, moms? We give our children some rules to live by. We give them some commands, if you will, and we tell them, hey, listen, as long as you take out the trash on Fridays or you pick up the dog stuff on Tuesdays or you mow the lawn when you're supposed to mow the lawn, everything's pretty good for our kids. It's a pretty good gig. We feed them, we put stuff over their roof, you know, know, roof over their heads, and things are pretty good. But if our children choose not to obey us, if our children blow us off, it comes with a consequence, right? I mean, we just don't let our kids just get away with whatever it is they want to do. And God's no different. Uh, growing up, I, I was in a, my mom and dad had divorced, and so I was in a, lived in a single home with a single parent. And my mom was just this little Italian gal. I think I came out of the womb bigger than my mother, okay? <laughs> And Mark uh, Mark Dobbins, right down here, knew my mom. We went to school together. And my mom, though, you know, I was always bigger than her. Man, if if I messed up, um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't wasn't good. My mom would spank me. I remember once I was a junior in high school. I'm a junior in high school. And I'd done something and ticked my mom off and she came up hey, yeah, she's, and she's, you know, and I know it was just killing her arm, you know, and I'm yeah, go ahead. You don't ever do that again because, and you know, she's It's not even, it's not even doing a thing to me, but there, there she is, you know, beating her son, you know, it's unbelievable. <laughs> and guess what? I lived. Unbelievable. You know, there, there, there's a, 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 what we call the greatest generation out there. The greatest generation grew up in an era where, where they were spanked. And they're called the greatest generation. How could that be? Look, I, I went to uh, um, Fremont Elementary School, and uh, when I was there, they just spank you right there in the classroom. I had a lady named Mrs. Robillard. In fact, there was someone right sitting right down here last hour, and they went, I had Mrs. Robillard. <laughs> I said, well, it, man, in her classroom, you, you messed up, and she'd just pull you right up to the desk, lean you over, and just give you a spanking right there in front of everybody, right in front of the classroom. And then, and then what would happen is Mrs. Robillard would then call my mom. And my mom didn't say, oh, what's wrong with the school? Uh. You guys don't know what you're doing. My, my little Ricky's an angel. Uh. <laughs> my mom didn't need to hear anything else. Uh. I didn't come home, and she didn't ask, hey, hey, tell me, son, what happened today? She didn't know. She didn't care. All that mattered was was the teacher called her. Right. And if the teacher gave me three... You know Spanks, and she was just going to triple the gig, and it was just and and that's just the way it was. Boy, this country's come a long way. I think we all know how to get back to the greatest generation, don't we? You see. When the Jewish people decided to blow God off, it came with a consequence, just like it comes with a consequence in your home, or it should. It should come with a consequence. and when the Jewish people blew God off, it was a pretty severe consequence. God allowed a, an, an invading army, the Persian army, to come, and they got to the walls and they had battering rams and they knocked down the gates and they knocked down the walls and And then they rushed into the city, and they just decimated all the homes and all the businesses. There was uh, a—God wanted to be worshipped in a special way and in a special place in the Old Testament. And and there was this big temple in Jerusalem, and they knocked down the the temple and bashed it all up. And and then what they did was they rounded up all of the Jewish people that were alive. A lot of them were killed. And they deported them from Jerusalem and took them all the way to a city called Babylon— which is where Iraq is today. And it was about 800 to 1,000 miles away. So the consequence for disobeying God was was pretty severe. And so now you have all these Jewish people that are living in a city called Babylon, and they lived there for decades. But finally, God's grace was extended to uh, the people of Jerusalem, and he allowed them to come back uh, to, to, to their hometown. But obviously when they came back, the walls were all knocked down and the city was a mess and weeds and vines were probably growing everywhere, varmints were probably running around, uh, the city had been looted, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And so as the people got back uh, to, to, to Jerusalem, they were depressed and bummed out. It was really kind of crummy. There was a guy named Nehemiah. He had never been to Jerusalem. He was probably born in Babylon who had made his way up the... the, the I don't know, the food chain of the Persian government. And he was pretty close to the king. The king at that time then was a guy by the name of Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah's brother had gone to Jerusalem and went all the way back. So he traveled the four or five months to get to Jerusalem. He checks it out. Then he travels four or five months back to Babylon. And he tells his brother, Nehemiah, wow, Jerusalem's a mess. The walls are all destroyed, the city's a mess, the people are all depressed and bummed out, and Nehemiah was grieved over it. He finally goes to his boss, the king, if you will, and says, hey, Artaxerxes, can I go to, would you allow me to go back to Jerusalem? I'd love to fix up the city. And Artaxerxes, the king, says, absolutely. So Nehemiah makes the four or five month trip to to Jerusalem, and when he shows up, he finds it a mess. The walls were a mess, the people were bummed out, and he finally puts a plan together to rebuild the wall. He organizes all the people, and he begins this incredible rebuilding project. But there were some people out there that didn't want him to rebuild the wall. They, they lived outside the city. There was a guy by the name of Sanballat, a guy by the name of Tobiah, Geshem. There were some Arabs, some, uh, some Ammonites, and they weren't real happy about the fact that this wall was being rebuilt. And so they caused Nehemiah some trouble, but he dealt with it. Then when the the walls were about halfway, three-quarters of the way done, there were leaders inside the city, uh, Jewish leaders, who now were causing just their own people all kinds of problems and trouble, and Nehemiah had to deal with all of those things. Well, finally, the walls were done. It took them 52 days to get it all done. And the first thing he did was he thought to himself, you know what? Now that this is all done, he appointed some people to kind of guard the city. He, he gave his brother Hananiah the job of being the mayor of the city. He gave Hananiah's buddy Hananiah the job of kind of being the police chief of the city. And so he appoints all these leaders and, and things are, 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 are pretty good there. And that's the story of really the, the first seven chapters of the book of Nehemiah. And like I said, what I wanna do is, is I wanna just share with you the, the, the five um, qualities of a leader that, that really stuck out to me. And if you're here, you know, and you've been here for the whole series, you know what, these are gonna just be a great reminder to you. If you're visiting with us for the first time, you know what, I hope that they're a blessing to you. I know they've blessed a lot of people, so here we go. Number one, great leaders are people of great compassion In Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 4, it says this. Nehemiah says, when I heard this, when when I heard about how crummy things were in Jerusalem, when my brother Hananiah told me about all the depression and the despair that was happening in the city, he says, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven, Nehemiah spent days and days mourning and fasting and praying over what was going on in Jerusalem. And I I told you that in the Hebrew, it really kind of has the thought that it was months and months he he mourned and prayed and and fasted. There's no doubt that he cared deeply about these people, right? Listen, he had never been to Jerusalem. Never been there. Here he is, he's... He's a big shot in Babylon, he's got a great job, he's got great bennies, he's got a great house, he's got a great life. He's a big man on campus in in Babylon. Him and the king are pretty close. There was no reason for him to really care about what was happening in Jerusalem. And yet for whatever reason, when he hears about the despair of the people, it just broke him. For months, he just wept and, and, and prayed and he, and, and he fasted, which is why he was such a great leader. Great, great leaders are people of great love and, and compassion. I want you to think about this. Jesus was, without a doubt, the greatest leader ever. And one of the things you can't miss when you study his life is that he was very sensitive to what was going on with the people around him. Let me give you a few examples. In John chapter 11, a friend of Jesus has died. And the Bible says that when Jesus shows up to the funeral, he starts to cry. And he's not crying because his friend is dead. He's going to raise him from the dead in about five minutes, and he already knows that. So why is he crying? When he shows up at this funeral and he sees this man's two sisters... Martha and Mary, and he sees them broken and crying. He sees other family members and friends that are just wailing over the death of their friend. Jesus sees the pain and the sorrow that sin had brought, that death had brought, and he's looking at all of these people. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead in about five minutes, and yet his heart is broken overseeing all of the, the pain and sorrow in the lives of all these other people. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus w- it was coming into the city of Jerusalem, and it says that when he finally saw the city, he began to cry. And he wasn't crying because he loved the architecture. <laughs> he didn't go, Wow, look at that skyline, you know. I sure love how they build the homes here. No. He could see the, the brokenness that sin had brought. He could see how the people had been deceived by the enemy. He saw all the pain and the sorrow. And the Bible says that he was just broken over that, and he wept over that. It says in Matthew chapter 9 that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. One of the things that I thought about this week in my office... I think the Lord really put it on my heart was this. Rick, do, do, do you really love people? Do you really, do you really care about people? Do you have a heart that has compassion for people? And maybe that's a question I'll ask you. Hey, do you really love your, your wife, guys? You really love your husbands, ladies? Do you really love your kids? You really love your employees that are under you managers? Those of you that are supervisors, do you really love those that you you supervise? Those of you that are the presidents and the vice presidents of the the businesses that you work at, you really love the the, the people you work for? Those of you that own the businesses, do you really care about those that work for you? Those of you that are teachers, do, do, do you really care about those kids that are in your classroom? Really? Um, When I was a freshman at Grayson Davis High School with Mark down here, um, I had a coach, Mike Burroughs, we had the same coach. And one day there was a knock on my door. And I opened the door and there's Coach Burroughs standing there. And I'm thinking, you gotta be kidding me. I know I'm no good in math, I know I'm no good in English, but you're trying to tell me that I'm no good in PE either, man, you're, gonna, you're coming over here to you know, talk to my mom about, you know, PE? And I said, coach, what are you doing here? And he goes, well, I, I just came by to see how you're doing. I so said, I'm doing fine. And he said, well, um, I, I was looking at your file and I noticed that you, your, your dad really hasn't been around And that's had to have been kind of tough. I was just wondering how things things were going. And I said, file? What are you talking about, there's a file on me? (laughs) He said, yeah, yeah, it says right here. And I thought to myself, so all my other teachers have had this file? (laughs) And not a one of them asked about how I'm doing? He was the first guy that apparently read the file and saw that I was growing up without a dad in my home. He was a, he's the guy who, who asked how I was doing. He didn't care about how well I could kick a ball or throw a ball. He just wanted to know, how are you doing? It wasn't about whether our, I, I, I was getting a good grade or a bad grade. He didn't care about that. He cared about me, you see. And come to find out, he was a Christian. And there's, um, (laughs) you know, one of my heroes in my life is Coach Burroughs. Not because he was a great coach, he was. The reason why he's a great hero to me is because the guy cared about my life. He actually, like, read the file and saw something and went, whoa, I'm going to go check on him and see how he's doing. You see, it's real easy I, to be a teacher and just make sure you get all the right grades and, you know, check off all the right boxes and do all the right stuff. It's real easy to be the supervisor or the manager, and, you know, you just kind of get the job done, and, or you're the owner of the business, and you're just checking the bottom line, making sure. It's easy to, to kind of get in that place. Instead of saying, hold on here, do, do I really care about these people? Do I really have a heart for them? Do, do I really, you know, you know, love them? Paul said this in Philippians chapter 2. He said, Rick, don't, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others, Rick. Instead, Rick, why don't you be humble? I want, I want you to think of others better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interest, but Rick, take an interest in others also. In fact, you have to have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and he was born a human being. And Rick, when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and even died a a criminal's death on on a cross. That was written to you. Jesus did all of that, left the glories of heaven, left this incredible thing called the Trinity. And he came here, he humbled himself, not because he had a need, but I had a need. You had a need. He thought more about you. He thought more about me than he did himself. And the Bible says that that's the attitude that I'm supposed to have. That's the attitude that you're supposed to have. And obviously, I think you see that in the life of Nehemiah, don't you? Here he is, a thousand miles away, living the the life of O'Reilly, man, doing well. And he hears about some people that had a need. And he says, you know what, I'm gonna put their need ahead of my own. I'm gonna go and try to be a, 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 a blessing to, to, to them. Here's one of the great leadership uh, laws. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Look, um, the world really doesn't care whether you know all the books of the Bible. Your neighbor doesn't care whether you know all the books of the Bible. The people you work with, they don't care whether you can rattle off all the great theological truths of Scripture. The people who work under you, the people in your classroom don't care whether you memorize a a verse each week. They really don't. Now, you should do all those things. But they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And when they see that you care for them, that's going to make them way more open to whatever it is you know. You see, the only group of people that Jesus really hated were those that knew a lot. In fact, the Pharisees were people that probably had the whole Old Testament memorized, and Jesus hated those guys. They knew a lot, but they didn't care about anybody. And the Bible says all knowledge does is puff up. And the religious leaders of that day, man, they were the most puffed up people you could ever imagine. They didn't really care uh, uh, about any anybody. Now let me remind you of a, a huge theological truth, and that is this. Jesus said in John chapter 3 that God so loved the world, you and I, that he gave his one and only son. He gave his son. That's what he gave. The, the God that we're here to worship, he gave his son. Now, you know, we send a little basket around and, and God wants you to honor him with your wealth. He wants you to give some shekels for his purposes and his glory. Aren't you glad he doesn't ask for you to give your son like he did? You see, the reason why God wants us to be givers is because he was a giver, the greatest giver ever. God loves people. He he cares about people. The Bible says this in Romans chapter 5. He says, but God showed His great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners. Beloved, there's no doubt that Jesus loves people. There's no doubt that Jesus cares about people. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus was asked a, a great question this young whippersnapper comes and says, Jesus, what's, the, what's the, the, the greatest commandment? If you could boil the Bible down, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus looked at this young guy and said, the greatest commandment is that you would love God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. That's the greatest thing you can do with your life. And I'm sure this young guy, at least in my imagination, said, thank you very much, and maybe he turned to walk away. And Jesus said, hold on there, young fella. I want to give you number two. He didn't ask for number two. But Jesus wanted to make sure he got number two. And I picture this young guy turning around going, okay, well, what's number two? If number one is loving you, what's number two? And Jesus said, number two is every bit as important as number one. In fact, he said it's equally important. And that is this, is that you would love other people the way you love yourself. And that wasn't a narcissistic love. That wasn't, hey, you know, get in front of a mirror and check out your abs. It wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't that kind of a love. What he was saying is, is that, you know, you loved yourself so much this morning that you met a need that you had. You were hungry, right? And so you ate some cereal, you, you ate a bagel, you ate some eggs and bacon, whatever it is. And Jesus said, that's great, you need to love yourself like that. You need to meet those needs in your life. But he says this, don't stop there. Don't just, you know, put food in your own mouth, make sure that you're doing something to help other people who have that same need. Love them the way you love yourself. And so, you know, when you put your suckles in that little green bag, some of that goes to help feed uh, people. You see, Jesus said the greatest thing you can do with your life is to love the Lord. It's the greatest thing you can do. But equally important is that you care about other people. In fact, Jesus said the one distinguishing mark of Christianity isn't how big your Bible is. It isn't about wearing a cross around your neck or cross earrings or having a honk if you love Jesus sticker on your car. The one distinguishing mark was that you would love other people. By this shall all men know that you're one of my disciples, Jesus said, by your love, for one another. He didn't say it was based upon all your theological knowledge or, you know, we all have to, you know, have our hair combed the right way or he said it'll be by your love. That's the one distinguishing mark, Jesus said. It's obvious that God wants us to care about others. Bob Pierce, who was the founder of World Vision said, let my heart be broken with the things that break the the heart of God. And this is what I believe is the first step of being a great leader. And it doesn't matter what your personality is. It doesn't matter what your educational level is. It doesn't matter how much wealth you have. Everybody can be compassionate, everybody. Number two, great leaders are, are people of great prayer. Once again, in that same verse, when I heard about this, Nehemiah said, when I heard about how crummy things were in Jerusalem, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days and days, months and months, I fasted, and I prayed, and I mourned. Beloved, the first thing Nehemiah did when he heard about all the crummy things that were going on in Jerusalem was he prayed. Now, he was going to do a whole lot more than just pray, okay? Nehemiah was a, a man of action. He was a great organizer. He was a great motivator. He was a great manager. He rebuilt the, the wall, as I said, around the city in 52 days. But before he did anything else, he got alone with God and he prayed. This was the pattern of his life. This is the pattern of a, of a good leader. I told you a few weeks ago that Nehemiah was a, was a prayer addict. And he really was. Listen, great leaders instinctively know that they need to balance the time that they spend with people, you know, leading them, motivating them, training them, whatever, with time alone with God. Look, 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 mom, dad, You got to spend time with your kids. You know, you got to get them up in the morning and get them dressed and get them breakfast and get them to school. And they get home, you got to help them do their homework. You got to you got to do all those things, and that's just at home. You got to you got to take care of the house. You got to mow the lawn, and and you got to you know take care of the weeds, and you got to take the trash. I mean, there's lots of things you have to do just at home. And then you go to work and, and now you have to interface with employees or your employer. And there's, this all, there's a lot of things that we have to do. Nehemiah did a lot of things. You don't get those walls built in 52 days because you don't, you don't do things. But he also knew that here were all the things I'm doing, but it has to be balanced out with time with the Lord. And in our culture today, people make time for all kinds of stuff. It's unbelievable what what I, you know, what Christians make time for, but rarely do they, you know, make time just to be alone with with the Lord. Nine times in this short little book, Nehemiah prays, every decision he had to make, every crisis he had to face, every criticism he received, he prayed about it. And I think it's one of the great characteristics of, of a leader. Now, let me share with you two great truths, okay? Great truth number one, every day that you wake up, okay, every day you wake up, God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, God's compassion, God's provision, God's peace, God's truth, and God's goodness are new every morning. And that's something to rejoice about, believer. Every time that big red ball comes up in the morning, You can bet your bottom dollar that God's love and God's grace and His mercy and His compassion, His peace, His truth, His goodness are are new every morning. The Bible says in Lamentations chapter 3, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And that word love in the Hebrew is a, a comprehensive word that encompasses all these attributes You can can rest easy when you go to bed tonight, believer, that when you wake up in the morning, wow, God's love is new, His mercies, His compassion, it's all new. But here's the second great truth. The second great truth is this, is that every day you wake up, there's evil all around you. Every day. Paul said this in Ephesians chapter 6, Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Now, what was he talking about? What's the day of evil? Well, that's got to be October 31st, right? (laughs) So it's only on October 31st that you need to put on the full armor of God because that's the evil day. No. The day of evil is today. He wasn't talking about some future date that, hey, listen, you don't need to put on the armor until that day. <laughs> oh, that's, that's just crazy. He was saying, today is the day of evil. That's why you gotta have the armor on all the time. Today is the day of evil. And because today is evil, because evil's all around you, you need to pray. Look, some of you literally, you woke up today, and it's 1220, and you have not prayed one time. You haven't prayed for your wife. You haven't prayed for your husband. You haven't prayed for your children. You haven't prayed for your mom. You haven't prayed for your dad. You haven't prayed for your grandpa. You haven't prayed at all. You came here and you're singing some great songs and you worship him through your giving and you're hearing a message from the word of God, but literally you personally have not prayed all, all morning long. Someone once said prayer is the only weapon that the evil one has no defense against. Now let me tell you the one big reason why some of you haven't prayed or why people don't pray, and that's this. People don't pray because they don't realize that they have an enemy that's why some of you haven't prayed. You just don't really get it. You don't understand that the devil's real. You don't understand that the demons are real. You don't understand how powerful they are. And because of this, you woke up this morning and ate your breakfast and combed your hair and brushed your teeth and got in your car and made your way down here. And you haven't spent one moment with the Lord. In Exodus chapter 17, we get this incredible example of the power of prayer. I want to read it to you. It says, while the people of Israel were still at Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. Moses commanded Joshua, Joshua, choose some men to go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. Tomorrow, I'm going to stand on top of the hill holding the staff of God in my hand. So this is what he says. He says, Joshua, you're the young guy. Get some soldiers. Sharpen up your spears. Sharpen up your swords. You get out there. I want you to take on this evil army. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go right up on top of this hill. I'm going to hold up my staff. And that was a position of of prayer, of, of trusting in the Lord. So Joshua did what Moses had commanded and fought the army of Amalek. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron, and Hur climbed to the top of a nearby hill. As long as Moses held up the staff in his hands, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he dropped his hands, the Amalekites gained the advantage. Moses' arms soon became tired so he could no longer hold them up. So Aaron and Hur found a stone for him to sit on. Then they stood on either side of Moses holding up his hands. So his hands held steady until sunset. And as a result, Joshua overwhelmed the, army of, the uh, army of Amalek in the battle. Here's this incredible story of, of this army coming against the Israeli people. And Moses grabs the young commander and he says, listen, man, you get the guys together. I want you to go out and fight them. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be right up on top of that hill and I'm going to be praying for you. And so imagine Joshua with these guys going out to take on this army and they turn around and there's the old man, there's the old prophet up on this hill and he's got a staff in his hand and I'm sure they're going, yes, the man's with God right now. He's praying that had to pump him up. I mean, that had to be an incredible sight and there they were battling it out and man and all of a sudden Moses' arms get tired and when his arms came down, all of a sudden the the Amalekites began to win the war. And all of a sudden, Moses goes, whoa, 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 whoa. And he puts his hands back up. And all of a sudden, the, the Israelis begin to win. And all of a sudden, his arms got tired again. And the Amalekites, they began to win. And so Moses is, dude, I'm, whoa. He figures this out. Uh, Aaron and her figure it out. They sit Aaron, they, they, they sit Moses on a stone. And here's Aaron. He's got his arm up. And on this side is her, and he's got Moses' other arm up. Imagine this picture. Imagine Joshua and his men fighting blood and screaming, and they turn around, and there's the old man. There's there's the old prophet, the prophet of God. And he's up on this hill, and they see Aaron and her holding his hands up. Unbelievable, this picture of the power of prayer. Now, let me give you a quick. Six quick observations. Number one, Moses recognized that he had an enemy. He knew he had an enemy. He understood he had an enemy. Listen to me, Christian. Moses knew he had an enemy. You got one, too. The second thing is Moses recognized he was no match against his enemy. He looked at this. A uh, 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 Malachite army and said, "Man, they got better guns. They got better spears. They're just better trained. These guys are better than us. Uh, uh, we're, we're man on man. We're just we we don't really stand a chance." Number three, he recognized because of that he needed to pray. He needed a power greater than whatever it is he had. Number four, he recognized his need to recruit others for whatever reason. He said, Aaron, her, I want you guys to come with me. And he didn't bring them up to that mountain so they could whittle something. They brought him up that mountain so that that they could be involved in this prayer meeting. And number five, Moses prayed. You see, listen to me, listen. Christian, I know, you know, you need to pray. You know it. You know you need to pray don't really need to tell you you need to pray. You know you need to pray. Moses knew he needed to pray, and guess what he did? He actually did it. (laughs) Beloved, listening to truth is easy. (laughs) Sitting in here listening to truth is easy. This doesn't cost you anything. L- listening to a sermon is easy. Listening to truth is easy. The hard part is actually doing it. Me telling you you got to pray, that's easy. Y- you know that, you've read that. You don't have to be a Christian but a, but you know, 24 hours and you know the importance of talking with the Lord. The issue is are you going to do it? And one of the things you notice in the story is that Moses actually prayed. And what was the outcome? It was victory. All this to say that great leaders understand the importance of prayer. N- n- number three, leaders are, are people of, of, of great courage. Number four, and I want to I get to this because this is my favorite verse. <laughs> great leaders are people of great integrity. In verse five, it says, For the entire 12 years that I was the governor in Judea, obviously, Artaxerxes had had given him a new position from the 26th year of the 32nd year of the reign of King Artaxerxes. Neither I nor my officials drew on our official food allowance. The former governors, however, in contrast, had laid heavy burdens on the people, demanding a daily ration of food and wine besides 40 pieces of silver. Even their assistants took advantage of the people. But because I feared God, here's my favorite phrase in all of the book of Nehemiah. Because I was a believer in God, Because I was a follower of God in a New Testament sense, because I was a believer, I I had given my life to Jesus Christ, he said, I did not act that way. Everybody else was doing crappy things, but I didn't do crappy things. Everybody else was doing all kinds of crummy, sinful things, but not me. I didn't do that. Without a doubt, this is one of my favorite passages in the entire book. He, he was a different kind of man. He was a different kind of leader. He was an incredible man of integrity. Now, I'm going to, all of you right now are just going to get really tight, okay? You're going to tighten you up right now. Listen to what Job said. Job said, for God watches how people live. Really? He sees everything they do. No darkness is thick enough to hide the wicked from his eyes. Nehemiah understood this. He understood that God was watching him. He understood that there were people that, you know, may have done some really crummy things and had gotten away with it maybe to some degree. But he knew he'd never get away with it because God was watching him. And for those of us that are, that are parents, we're not only being watched by God, but we're also being watched by our kids. Our kids are watching us. And I want you just to think about it. Is there anything in your life that you would go, dude, this is just, I'd be ashamed of this? Because if there is, you gotta take advantage of it. You gotta gotta take advantage of this moment and go to them and talk to them. The Bible says this in Proverbs chapter 20, children are fortunate if they have a father or a mother who is honest and and does what is right. Mom, dad, one of the greatest gifts you can give your children is integrity. And you give them that gift of integrity by being a parent of integrity. Now, nobody does it perfectly, nobody. But one of the things you do when you realize, man, this has been kind of crummy in my life, and maybe my kids have seen something crummy, is so you go to them and say, you know what, Mom hasn't really lived out the faith very well. Dad really has fumbled this one, and I'm sorry. Forgive me. Pray for me that I, Mommy would do better or Daddy would do better or whatever. And Let me also say this. You need to be a person of integrity because unbelievers are watching you. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5. He said, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Christian, you're being watched. God sees everything that's going on in your life, right? Your children are watching you and and the lost are watching you. There are people you work with who may not like your personality. They may disagree with your faith. They may not like your politics or whatever, but they better respect your integrity. Uh, I've been here uh, uh, on the staff for almost 30 years, and right after I got hired, there was a guy named John Fraioli. Some of you know John. He's the financial guy here, and so he's been here 20, I don't know, five to six years. I don't know what it is, and he told me something interesting not long ago. He said in the 25 years that he's been here, you can imagine with the school and, and uh, uh, you know, this big church and all that goes on, there are all kinds of bills that we pay here. I don't, I don't know what it is. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of, of bills come in that we have to pay with the kitchen and all that, just hundreds of them every month. And in the 25 years that he's been here, never once, not one time has this church never not made their payment within the allotted time. Not once. Could you imagine how crummy it would be if one of our suppliers came and brought us plates or whatever it is that they brought us shirts or whatever, and the bill came, and the church people didn't pay their bill on time? Business owner. What about you? Your suppliers know you're a believer. You know you go to Big Valley Grace kind of a thing. When, when the bills come, do you pay them on time? Or are you always finagling them, hassling them, trying to get a nickel here and a nickel there? Those of you that are just employees at places, you always showing up five minutes late, punching in five minutes late, ten minutes late, leaving a little bit early. And all the people there know you're a Christian. And you're always there late. You just got zero integrity, right? Leaving early. Your lunch break, you always take, instead of 45 minutes, you know, whatever it is you get, you take 50. If you get 30 minutes, you take 35. I know that's how everybody else acts. I know there are people out there trying to game the system. I know it. Nehemiah said, not me. I didn't act that way because I was a follower of God. I was a follower of Christ. Great leaders are are, are people who just have incredible integrity. Um, And the last one, because some of you will go crazy if you don't fill it in. Great leaders are are, are people of, of, of great focus. I told you last week, you know, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Paul said, this one thing I do, listen to me. He didn't say, you know, these 40 things I dabble in. Look, Jesus said the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing is, is that you keep your eye on the Lord, that you love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. First four, the 10 commandments, right? Don't have any other gods before me. Don't make for yourself an idol and worship that idol. Don't misuse the name of God. Don't, 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 don't misuse my name. And and then, hey, set aside one day and keep it special. Keep it holy for me. The main thing is that you keep your eye there. But remember, remember, the second most important thing is just like the first, and that is that you care about other people. And let me just tell you something. If you, for for, for me, where that applies. Um, the most is in my family. See, if I can't care about my family, if I can't love my family the way I love myself, then what does it matter whether I'm loving anybody else? Hey, 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 husbands. It's gotta, the main thing, you know, keeping the main thing, the main thing. You, you, you gotta love the Lord, but it has to play itself out in your family. Do you love your wife? Do you love your kids, guys? Hey, ladies, do, do you love your husband? Do you love your kids? It's gotta play itself out there first. That's, where, that's the most important place. Well, why don't you all stand, and I just want you to close your eyes. Over in the venue, just, just stand up for, for a quick second. And close your eyes, okay? And I just want to have a second with you, just, just alone. I gave you some thoughts about compassion and being a person of prayer, courage, integrity, focus. And I just want you to think about this. Which of those qualities would you say you do best? Some of you are are very compassionate people. I know you. Some of you are incredibly um, in tune with the Lord in prayer. Some of you are are incredibly, uh, just your your character, your integrity is unbelievable. I know some of you in this room, and all five of those things are, 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 man, they're just rich in your life. But now I want you to think about maybe which of these Character qualities is the weakest in your life. You know, maybe you are a person of great courage, but you know what, right now, you're just not very compassionate. You don't have much compassion for your spouse or your children or your parents, people in your classroom, employees at your business. Maybe you're a person of great compassion, but man, you just don't spend much time praying. You don't get alone and pray much. Maybe this week, you might take this little sheet of paper and say, you know, which of these do I need to work on? Maybe you might go into the altar room and let one of our spiritual leaders pray for you. Maybe just go in and say, you know, I'm not very compassionate. Will you pray for me? Hey, my integrity is a little weak and I need to re- really rebuild it. Would you, would you pray for me? maybe you just want some prayer for your marriage or whatever, take advantage of the altar room, okay? It's, it's open for you. There are good people in there that love to just meet with you, okay? Pastor Scott, would you close our time in prayer?